Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Most of the time, even tech people don't tend to worry about semiconductor production. After all, these basic components of electronic systems are supposed to remain out of sight and out of mind. But the world is in the midst of a major semiconductor shortage that's affecting products from automobiles and aluminum to tractors and Xboxes. As it turns out, there are computers and everything, which means that the semiconductor supply chain is part of the supply chain for nearly everything. Semiconductors are what put the silicon in Silicon Valley, so we're going to take stock of why we're in a crisis now, which Bay Area companies are being affected, and how changes in American policy could transform this vital industry. That's next on Forum, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Last week, Toyota reported 40% cuts to their September production because they were missing microchips for the various electronic systems in their cars. They were only the latest company to disclose problems with their semiconductor supply chains. And that's because technology companies, beginning here in the Bay with outfits like Fairchild Semiconductor, then its descendant Intel, of course, really have changed the world in this crucial way. There are small computers embedded in all kinds of products, and now for a variety of reasons— there's a global shortage of their components. It's one of those moments where a problem acts as a kind of X-ray on an industrial system that's otherwise difficult to see. A quick glance reveals so much about the modern world. American companies choosing efficiency over resilience, China's increasing weight in the global economy, Taiwan's strategic importance, and the movement of certain kinds of manufacturing and leadership to East Asia. Even if you don't think you care about semiconductor technology, This industry almost certainly touches on something that you do. So today, we're joined by Asa Fitch, a reporter covering the semiconductor industry for The Wall Street Journal. Welcome, Asa. Thanks, Alexis, for having me. We also have Bindia Vakil. She's the CEO and founder of Resilink, a provider of supply chain mapping services and risk monitoring data. Welcome, Bindia. Thank you for having me. And we also have Hassan Khan, He's a product operations expert with a PhD in semiconductor policy who's been thinking and writing a lot about the U.S. policy position when he's not doing his day job at Apple and would like it noted that he's not here to speak on their behalf. Welcome, Hassan. Thanks for having me, Alexis. Uh, Asa, I want to start extremely basic and work our way up here. So tell me what a semiconductor is for folks who have kind of a hazy conception. And then let's go into why we have a semiconductor shortage right now. Sure. I mean, a semiconductor is essentially very high purity sand that's been melted down and made into circuitry that's the brains of computers and all kinds of other electronics. So, you know, when you ask a computer to calculate one plus one, it's a thing that uh, calculates that and, you know, eventually the answer spits out its two. Uh, So that at a very high level is, is what a semiconductor does. Of course, it gets a lot more complex than that um, in real world applications. Um, and then right now, you know, why do we have the shortage? Is it just COVID or are there a broader set of factors? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty complex set of reasons. But in the end, it comes down to there's just extraordinary demand for all sorts of electronics. Um, it, you know, COVID is, a, is the big driver of this, right? Like last year, people started working from home. They started playing from home. They started communicating with their families from home. And, you know, guess what? When you start to do that, it means you need more electronics, you need more laptops, you need more, you know, better cell phones, you need um, uh, a lot of other things. You're using Internet services that themselves require a lot of servers that are, um, you know, underpinned by semiconductors, by chips. Um, And so there's just extraordinary demand for these electronics that contain, contain chips. And that's a that's really a driving force behind this shortage. Now, there there are different complex reasons why, you know, the auto industry has been more affected than others. Maybe we can get into that later. But um, broadly speaking, it's just that there's there's just been this kind of unprecedented demand for uh, for all kinds of electronics. Yeah. 
it was kind of shocking. I mean, people don't really think of it this way, but PC sales have been falling for years and then spiked up uh, over the last year. Uh, Bindia, why are automakers being hit particularly hard? So um, the automotive supply chain is incredibly lean. As you can imagine, typically um, in the past, when we used to buy a car, a car used to have mostly mechanical products. These products were made, um, stored and distributed around close by around the US itself. So if GM, let's say had a plant in Michigan, a lot of their suppliers made metal or metal derivative parts or leather seats and foam and things like that. And the plants were pretty well spread around them. Um, over the last 20, 25 years, the complexity of a car became more and more complex. There are so many more electronic devices. Now, if you look at their cars, have cameras, sensors everywhere, like, you know, even rolling up windows um, and uh, up and down requires a computer chip. So that what, uh, what what caused the complexity now is now you have a dashboard supplier who has a three, four tiered supply chain span, and the parts that go into just one of these products, like a dashboard, could come from 15 countries. And it's a fairly complicated supply chain, and it's all powered by semiconductor. And semiconductor is an incredibly complex device to manufacture. And it can take you 16 to 20 weeks to make that device. And that supply chain is predominantly um, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan based. So here you have a global supply chain with very little inventory onshore, um, with parts that can take 20 weeks to get to you and then get assembled in these incredibly complex devices like dashboards. The dashboard supplier then assembles everything, ships it to the car company, and then the car gets manufactured. So it's an incredibly long and um, complex supply chain and a part could actually cross the globe a few times <laughs> huh. to make its way into the car. And so Asa, when COVID hit, my understanding is car companies then cut a bunch of their orders for these things. And then when they tried to re-up their orders, they found like, oh, wait, this production has actually gone to other companies, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, when, when COVID hit, these automakers were like, we're screwed. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's not, people aren't going to drive cars for, again, for a very long time. They're staying at home. Um, they are, um, you know, it could be years before demand comes back. So these car makers said, we're just going to cancel all our orders for these chips um, because we just can't see this, this coming back anytime soon. And, and they miscalculated um, later last year, um, demand just came roaring back for cars. And these, uh, these car makers discovered that chip makers had uh, allocated their, their factory capacity to other uh, industries that were booming like cell phones, like all kinds of other electronics, laptops, uh, PCs, et cetera. And you know, they, they couldn't get that uh, manufacturing capacity. They couldn't get those chips made again. So the, the automakers really made, a, made an error, a strategic error in um, predicting that their market was going to be depressed for a very long time. Yeah. And these components, these chips, they're not sort of the bleeding edge technology in most cases, right? So they're they're actually not expensive. These are like parts that cost like 20 bucks or, or, or less, $5. And yet they're holding up the production of like massive numbers of cars. Yeah, that's right. I mean, a lot of these, 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 uh, these chips are microcontrollers, which is a very, it's like a very simple kind of CPU um, to put it in a kind of back of the envelope way. And those things cost very small amounts of money, maybe 10 cents, maybe 20 cents. I mean, it could be something that, that small and that kind of thing can really hold up, uh, you know, a $50,000, $60,000 car. It's uh, kind of crazy. Well, yeah, that's that supply chain risk. Um, Hassan, I want to ask you about the U.S. position within this market. I mean, are, are we still a leading semiconductor maker? So um, I think the way to think about the U.S.'s position is we play in different product markets. Um, if you look at the leading edge, uh, which is the one that's got a lot of headline attention today, uh, the U.S. no longer has 
um, a manufacturer that a U.S. domiciled and U.S. headquartered manufacturer that's at the leading edge today. The that's in Taiwan with TSMC um, and Samsung in South Korea. Uh, Intel, which was traditionally the leader, is sort of third in the race and has ambitious plans to catch up. Um, but in other product markets, the U.S. does still have strong positions from a manufacturing standpoint. So, for example, firms like Texas Instruments, um, Corvo, or um, on semiconductor all play leading roles within their market segments and have U.S.-based manufacturing. But it's not the sort of uh, leading edge $10, $15 billion fabs that the uh, latest and greatest chips are made off of. Yeah. And if you had to give a pocket sketch of sort of how the U.S. fell from the top of the leading edge, which we sort of invented the industry uh, in, the, in the 60s and kind of maintained that, that edge until recent times, like sort of what happened? So, uh, Alexis, you're exactly right. Um, the, the industry was invented here, and for a long time, we had basically 100% of market share. Um, there was an initial crisis in the early 80s when Japanese firms began to take market share, in particular in markets like memory and DRAM, which are commoditized and production processes, um, are, are, or, or Japanese manufacturers took a, a more conservative approach. Um, that sort of precipitated the first crisis in the American semiconductor industry. We regained leadership beginning in the 90s, and that was at the vanguard was Intel, uh, as you mentioned earlier. Um, and we maintained that leadership uh, through the 90s and into the early 2000s, largely through a combination of a public-private um, uh, ecosystem where the U.S. federal government was funding a lot of early-stage research in collaboration with semiconductor firms um, sort of laying out what directions they needed support on. Um, and what happened is that beginning in the early 2000s, there were about 18 to 20 firms that were manufacturing at the leading edge. And as costs for manufacturing um, at the leading edge went up precipitously, the number of firms who continued to operate in that uh, in a vertically integrated model began to dwindle to the point where there's really, as I mentioned, about three firms at the leading edge today. Um, and in that happening, the U.S.'s leading edge uh, uh, manufacturing base basically dwindled to one manufacturer, which was Intel. And for uh, a while, they maintained their global lead, um, but there were missteps with their 14, 10, and 7 nanometer processes um, due to some design decisions that they made that caused Intel to lose its, its lead um, and therefore the U.S. to lose its uh, technological lead as well. Thank you so much, Hassan Khan. Uh, we're talking about the big semiconductor crunch and American industrial policy with Hassan Khan, who you just heard, a product operations expert with a PhD in semiconductor policy. Bindia Vakil, uh, CEO and founder of Resilink, a provider of supply chain mapping services. And Asa Fitch, a reporter covering the semiconductor industry for The Wall Street Journal. And we want to know, have you or your company been affected by the semiconductor shortage? Or have you been unable to get the things you want to buy because of global supply problems? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about the big semiconductor crunch in American industrial policy with Asa Fitch, a reporter covering the semiconductor industry for The Wall Street Journal, Hassan Khan, a product operations expert with a PhD in semiconductor policy, and Bindia Vakil, the CEO and founder of Resilink, a provider of supply chain mapping services. And Bindia, I wanted to come to you to talk about sort of some of the difficulties of this business. You know, there it's also some of the glory of the semiconductor business, which is that we, for a long time, have had a rough law called Moore's Law. Many people know about it. It sort of describes the way that that computers have improved along a kind of uh, uh, at, at high speed relative to other types of technologies. So can you talk about how that speed of improvement is actually one of the difficulties for this business? Yeah, exactly. Moore's law says that every two years, the, the number of transistors you can pack on a wafer and the cost of that process will drop 
in half. Uh, you'll be able to put twice the number and manufacture at half the cost. And so that's what that's kind of the exponential growth in technology and innovation that has driven um, electronics technology to where we see today, where our phone is almost what we might have con considered a supercomputer in a of a few generations, not too long ago, actually. So this incredible drive to make smaller and smaller, but highly computationally intensive and powerful devices needs a very fast paced manufacturing ecosystem that can within two years re um, invent the manufacturing process, retool all those incredibly complex manufacturing devices to support larger wafer sizes that can pack more semiconductors onto it. Um, and the cost of, like we just heard, the cost of a setting up a wafer fab can be billions of dollars. So as more and more companies started innovating on this, um, the pace of innovation far outpaced manufacturing's ability to keep up with. Um, the other thing that was also happening in Silicon Valley is more and more investors were funding the latest chip manufacturing and design technology, but not everybody wanted to uh, ask their uh, startups to build a billion dollar wafer fab. So here comes the emergence of uh, subcontractors like what we see TSMC and, and UMC and others, where they made the massive investments. It was a collaboration by multiple um, semiconductor companies and they they said, okay, we will build the manufacturing capacity and then you guys just give us your chip design and we will build your semiconductors for you. Mm -hmm. And this began, um, uh, you know, uh, 20, 25 years ago and picked up steam in the 2000s. And, and that uh, brought, gave rise to this incredibly popular and very lucrative sector called fabless semiconductor manufacturing companies, sem fabulous semiconductor companies that didn't do any of their own manufacturing. Yeah. And now a bunch of tech companies have gotten into that game as well. So Apple makes their own chips, Google designs their own chips, chips and gets them manufactured, Google, uh, NVIDIA, and, and many others. Um, Asa Fitch, wanted to ask you, we just heard a bit of the story of TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor, how did they become such a dominant player in this market? Like if, if financing those kinds of, you know, massive fabs did not work in the U.S., why did it work in Taiwan? Um, uh, TSMC has, uh, which stands for Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, um, has a long and very interesting history. Um, it was started by a guy named Morris Chang, who worked at Texas Instruments, actually, uh, for a long time in the U.S., and um, and went back to Taiwan, uh, to, or went to Taiwan to um, to found uh, to, to found TSMC a couple of decades ago, or, or a little bit more than that. And um, he innovated this idea that uh, Bindia was just talking about of fabulous uh, uh, these fabulous companies manufacturing or entrusting their manufacturing to a company like like TSMC. And so they, over the years, built this business of contract chip making. Um, and became more and more successful, signed on more and more people. He saw that as the cost of chip making grew, it made more sense to outsource. It made more sense for people to outsource it to one manufacturer who would just be really good at manufacturing. Um, and so over time, uh, TSMC continued to invest and invest, never took big risks technologically. You know, if you're a contract manufacturer, you just can't screw up. You know, if you know, you're, you're innovating a new uh, technology or a, a new way of making chips or a smaller transistor, um, you know, if you if you fail in producing that smaller transistor you promise, you're not going to get the business that you that you expected. So they had this discipline where they kind of were the the tortoise and the tortoise and the hare story, um, mm. where they just kept consistently innovating. Whereas a company like Intel uh, was able to take more risks in the past decade or so um, and chose to take those risks because it wasn't sort of tied to the same uh, economic model. And some of Intel's bets didn't, didn't pan out, um, unfortunately, for that company. And uh, TSMC, as a result, um, and Samsung sort of alongside it, 
they were able to catch up and eventually surpass uh, Intel technologically. Yeah. Hassan, you know, this, of course, you know, what Asa was just describing is the way the whole global economy really has gone in a lot of a lot of ways with uh, a lot of manufacturing going to different parts uh, of East Asia, Southeast Asia. Uh, and it's maybe hard for people who are listening to to really see what a major change that was from the way that U.S. companies had worked in this space before, uh, where they had been vertically integrated and they had both designed and they had and they had made their components uh, as well. And I want to talk about what role you think U.S. policy played in that. Was this purely a market-based change or were there ways that other countries supported their semiconductor industries that we did not? Uh, so I, I think your, your last point is exactly right, Alexis. Um, for many developing nations, in particular in East Asia, um, building up a domestic semiconductor manufacturing industry was a key policy goal. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Japan sort of was at the vanguard of this effort, um, beginning with MITI, its internet, its um, its trade ministry uh, in the 1970s and 1980s, where they had very specific industrial policy programs aimed at catalyzing a domestic manufacturing um, uh, uh, industry for semiconductors. And then um, uh, South Korea followed as well um, in the 90s, and that that helped to lead to the rise of firms like Samsung and SK Hynix. Um, and now we're, we're seeing it play out again um, with China, which for the last several decades has been openly saying that it, it intends to catalyze its own domestic manufacturing capabilities, um, and its goals have become more and more um, ambitious, where I believe it's in the latest uh, Made in China 2025 program um, that uh, CCP has said that it intends to set a target of 80% of semiconductors uh, consumed within China um, should be made domestically. Um, and that's a very ambitious target, because if you think many of our electronics are built in China, but the semiconductors for them do not necessarily get made in China. Um, and so overall, I, I would say this is one where uh, a lot of other nations have taken a very proactive approach to catching up to the frontier. And in the US, truth be told, we have not had a coordinated um, and coherent policy agenda in this industry for several decades now. We're talking about the big semiconductor shortages that are hitting all kinds of industries, as well as American industrial policy with Hassan Khan, product operations expert with a PhD in semiconductor policy, Bindia Vakil, uh, CEO and founder of Resilink, a provider of supply chain mapping services and risk monitoring data, as well as Asa Fitch, a reporter covering the semiconductor industry. And we want to hear from you. Have you or your company been affected by this shortage? It is hitting all kinds of different industries you wouldn't expect. Or have you been unable to buy what you want because of global supply problems. Maybe you even, you know, there's a lot of chip companies that were around here in the Bay Area. Do you work or have you worked for one of these chip companies? And what do you think is going on? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Um, Bindia, you do risk analysis. And one of the things that just, you know, a, a novice looking at this might might worry about is that so much of the world's semiconductor manufacturing and so much of, of American company semiconductor uh, manufacturing is happening in Taiwan, which happens to be in a very delicate geopolitical situation, to, to put it mildly. How do you see this risk? It's actually really interesting. If you look at the supply chain and you go back through the layers, right? This is what we do. We map the supply chain multiple tiers deep and the supply chain for semiconductors is actually dominated at the substrate level by Japanese companies like Shinetsu or Simco, which are 80, 70, 70 plus percent of the capacity there. So there's Japan at the very foundation of that supply chain. From there, the substrate goes to TSMC and these UMCs and Taiwan becomes very, very strategically important because they make the wafer. Now the wafer is where the complexity of the process is, right? Where it's incredibly difficult 
to make it. We've been talking all about wafer and wafer manufacturing and how difficult and long drawn out that process is. And that's in a geopolitically sensitive area. That's also where earthquakes happen. In fact, one of the things we find is every two years, there's an earthquake more than seven. And that shakes up damages in uh, inventory or working process, because again, this requires very precise um, no shaking type of, uh, is, you know, it's extremely sensitive manufacturing process with no vibrations. So here you have Taiwan sitting on a Pacific ring of fire making these hurricanes hit Taiwan on a regular basis. It's an island. We have Taiwan water shortages right now that are going on and wafer fabs need uninterrupted water and power. So there are all these issues besides the scary thought of China someday um, taking an aggressive position over Taiwan, right? So there's Taiwan, completely an island, no uh, land transportation in or out. Then the supply chain is shifts to South Korea, where you have the assembly test sites all located very, very close to North Korea, right? And in fact, when the two, three years ago, when the rhetoric really heated up, we were watching Incheon very closely because hundreds of um, companies in semiconductor use sites in South Korea in Incheon um, to do um, packaging of the wafer from Taiwan. It goes to South Korea. It gets packaged into these devices that you can put on your board. From there, these these parts now are semiconductor parts ready to be mounted on your boards, and they go to parts of China, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, etc. Mm -hmm. So this supply chain is incredibly vital to humanity, not just the US, but to humanity. Life as we know it relies on semiconductor, and it is in parts of the world where we see regular earthquakes, hurricanes, all kinds of geopolitical issues and challenges. Um, and a lot of this is um, like flown by air, right? So when COVID um, began and all the air traffic was hugely disrupted, we lost a lot mm. of belly cargo capacity. So that affected how much we could ship by air. And then we had container shortages. So we could, people who could have shipped over ocean suddenly started to look for air capacity. And so it's just been, you know, the perfect storm, if you will, this last, these last two years. But we've always maintained when look, when you look at the semiconductor supply chain, it has been one of those really scary supply chains that you think if this is disrupted, life as we, as we know it will end for a period of time. Huh. Asa, I, I wanted to ask you about, if, if, is there a market way of taking this risk into account, like this kind of systemic risk? Because when I hear Bindia talk or I've, I've heard other people talk about the risk to the supply chain, honestly, I just get flashbacks to the global housing crash and that there were these all these layers of risk that were in the system that were hard to see all together and they were hard to see how they would how if, if one of these things went how that cascading effect going through the system uh, would induce problems far outside uh, the, the regions where you think it might have um, so how how does an individual company deal with this or does it need to be dealt with in some other way Asa yeah, I mean, it's a difficult problem. People are having those conversations now. I mean, there's been, you know, within the supply chain, there's there's always been this kind of maxim that it's unofficial maxim that nobody likes inventory. Nobody likes to build up a lot of inventory in case there's a crisis and that they need to, you know, send that, uh, have a basically a reserve or a cushion um, because that inventory costs money and it means that you don't book that revenue immediately. So in sort of financial terms, it's bad to hold inventory, but in a sort of systemic way, maybe it's actually good to hold, maybe you need to hold inventory. Um, and so people are having a conversation within these supply chains about what the lessons from this are and whether they need to alter the way that they, they do business with each other and the kinds of assurances they provide each other on, um, on supplies. And, uh, you know, people are doing things, more things like, you know, uh, pre-purchasing stuff they need so that they, they are sure that they have it in the future. Um, you know, they're working more closely with each other on, on uh, different parts of the manufacturing process um, 
because they realize they need to collaborate a little bit more so they have more visibility and people are sharing their projections. I mean, people make decisions on manufacturing based on projections of future demand. So, you know, if you think there's going to be, you know, 10,000 cars made uh, next quarter or whatever it is, you're going to need this many parts and you give your projections down through your supply chain to people. Everybody needs to see that. Everybody needs to know sort of what people think is going to happen. And, you know, in the past, people haven't been sharing those, those kinds of details. It's kind of a business uh, secret or whatever, or they're just, they're just a little bit, uh, you know, um, they have the blinders on, I guess. Um, so those conversations are having, having, are, are taking, taking place, but I, I think it's a difficult problem. I'm not sure that, um, it's going to be resolved anytime soon. Yeah. Hudson, um, we might have to deal with some of this after the break, but what would your solution to this be if you, you know, could, could wave a wand and, and start to change things in American policy? Uh, that's a loaded question, Alexis. There's a lot of things that I would like to see. As we got to do it in a minute and 30 seconds. So sorry. Okay. So um, I, I think uh, we, we have, so let me back up. Uh, I think this first steps the administration took to do a supply chain review were very good first steps. And Congress has a few bills um, that are working their way through right now. Um, one passed the Senate, which is shorthand is called USICA, stands for the United States Innovation and Competition Act. Um, those are also good first steps, but I think they're overly focused on R&D. And I believe that we need a policy focus on uh, rebuilding our industrial capacity, which will take different measures than simply funding um, R&D, which largely takes place at universities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you would like to see essentially not sort of science policy as we've done it before, where we say, all right, come up with some new forms of semiconductor manufacturing, but you want to see here's financing to actually build some of these facilities. Uh Yes. So I think I've been very critical of um, the what, what I call selling science policy is industrial policy. Um, and you have lawmakers say that they're for industrial policy today, but the bills they're proposing are, are really just repackaged science policy. And, and the mechanisms available for industrial policy, sort of as you hint, cover more than just R&D funding. They cover financing, purchase agreements, workforce training, um, and it opens up a whole bag of tricks that um, policymakers can look into. Yeah, and we will get to more of that after the break, kind of like the things we did for vaccine manufacturing. We're talking about the big semiconductor shortages that are hitting all kinds of industries and American industrial policy with Hassan Khan, product operations expert, Bindia Vakil, CEO and founder of Resilink, and Asa Fitch, a reporter covering the semiconductor industry. We'll be back with your questions and comments after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking semiconductors with The Wall Street Journal's Asa Fitch, uh, the CEO and founder of Resilink, Bindia Vakil, as well as Hassan, uh, Hassan Khan, a product operations expert with a PhD in semiconductor policy. I want to read a couple of comments. Paul writes, I'm wondering if some of these companies that make cars and home appliances can offer more models without these complex computers that require powerful semiconductors. I don't drive now, but when I did, I was very happy with my manual transmission low-tech car. I don't need a refrigerator that will download my eating habits to my nutrition tracking app. A lot of the computing powers in these non-computer devices just seems frivolous. I'll just let that one stand. Uh, Abdul also says there are also ripple effects of the shortage. Because of the shortage impacting new car manufacturing, sometimes due to chips costing pennies, we've seen a large price spike in used car prices, and we're all dramatically impacted by this. Also now I want to bring in Phil from Burlingame into our conversation. Welcome to the show, Phil. Hey, Phil. Hi, how are you? Hey, doing well, doing well. So, um... You know, when you take a look at silicon, um, you know, you have to look at the silicon curtain, you know, the iron curtain. And, and, you know, these chips are strategic called the military. And the Chinese are, you know, and the, the Pentagon are actively working to separate the supply chains. Now, it really hasn't been reported. I love the conversation. It's a, uh, it's a capitalistic one. It's a Silicon Valley one. But the conversation is shifting a little bit into the military sphere. Hassan Khan, I think you have written a little bit about this. Can you uh, talk a little bit more about the military's role in all of this? 
course. So um, I think if you go back to the, the beginnings of the semiconductor industry, the military played um, a pivotal role in not just um, you know, funding R&D, um, but also in funding manufacturing facilities and playing the role of first purchaser for um, uh, inventions like the integrated circuit, um, which were first used in uh, Minuteman missiles. Um, Beginning in the 1980s, however, the, the ability of the military to drive technological progress in the industry began to wane as the commercial industry grew so large. And in fact, um, the industry starting in the 1980s began a series of collaborative institutions largely um, to, to, um, to, to, to fund collaborative research outside of the military's purview. Essentially, they said the military is overly focused on technologies like um, three, five semiconductors or, um, you know, radiation hardened semiconductors, um, whereas the, the industry needs to focus on um, silicon chips. Um, and so it, it, as the military grew to be a smaller portion of the overall um, customer demand, they, they had less of a say over where things were going. Um, and that's why today I think the military is very concerned about the loss of American technological leadership because they're reliant on um, the commercial supply chain for a lot of the chips that are used in, you know, things like fighter jets, satellite systems, and so on and so forth. Um, but it does have, you know, several ongoing research programs through um, the military R&D, um, like the Office of Naval Research, um, and also through, uh, for example, DARPA, um, that still play a key role in shaping um, American uh, R&D. Um, but I think to the overall point is reliant on the commercial supply chain um, and wants a strong domestic supply chain um, to ensure a supply for uh, military hardware. Mm -hmm. um, Robin tweets, does new chip manufacturing capacity have to be state of the art or would it make sense to spin up a few previous generation fabs in the U.S. at lower costs? Are those still useful? Bindia? Yes, in fact, um, not every device that uses semiconductor need the latest and greatest chip because as you know, um, certain applications are not as computationally intensive and they don't have the space constraints that a typical phone would have or a typical um, consumer electronic device um, that's a wearable would have. So certainly in a car, um, when you think about the semiconductor devices that go into cars or medical equipment um, or aerospace defense products or industrial products or heavy machinery, a lot of times there is um, uh, there is older technology that goes in. Now the challenge is that the 200 millimeter or the um, that that was the previous generation. Right now we're on the 300 millimeter fab cap uh, capacity. That's where um, the new research and development is happening. And now we're actually a lot of companies are investing in the 450 millimeter, which is the latest and greatest, but not in production at scale yet. The car companies and all these um, shortages that we're hearing about are on the 200 millimeter. So that is exactly the challenge that the companies that are all investing are investing in the 300 millimeter and beyond and not as much capacity is going into the older technology. Now there is a mixed bag here. So if I'm a manufacturer putting up a new wafer fab, then I don't want to build a wafer fab for 200 millimeter meter because those chips can be a little bit more expensive because the whole idea for building it on the 300 millimeter is that it's 30 to 40 percent cheaper to build the latest technology because you can cram more chips on on a larger size wafer so that's where the government support and um, uh, incentives come in um, companies are free markets free market follows where the profits are and where the next uh, future demand is um, in order for us to incentivize um, companies that are profit motive to build the older technology that's going to need government. Yeah. Well, and Eric, uh, a listener, asked a question kind of very related to this. It says, many semiconductor manufacturers are very profitable and had given billions of dollars of that profit to shareholders over the past decade. How can support for domestic semiconductor manufacturing be tailored to incentivize additional investment instead of just falling through to increase share buybacks and dividends? 
Hassan, he's just like lobbing you the ball here. This is, I feel like this is your bailiwick. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the things I've been disappointed with in uh, the policy approaches that have been put forth for um, incentivizing d- um, domestic semiconductor production is they follow one formula, which is essentially tax incentives. If you read um, the CHIPS Act, which is it, which allocates $52 billion in funding um, for uh, semiconductor ma- domestic semiconductor manufacturing, it's basically primarily all tax incentives. Um, and, and I agree with the listener in that there are actually a diversity of approaches that we could take um, that we have taken in the past. As I sort of mentioned, um, the U.S. led uh, several collaborative um, public-private partnerships um, beginning in the 80s uh, as a response to Japanese ascendance, um, the, the most famous of which is Semitech, which was a joint um, uh, public-private partnership between semiconductor manufacturers and DARPA that actually built a facility that helped um, firms work with uh, uh, semiconductor equipment suppliers to up- upgrade their capabilities. Um, and uh, you don't see those types of options on the table today. Um, and, and my view is that one of the reasons we don't see them is because this has become a major policy concern only very recently, we, as I mentioned earlier, this was not something that had a lot of high visibility in policy circles. Um, and so everyone is responding in an emergency to try and fix the problem as quickly as possible, rather than kind of going back to the drawing board and saying, what are the long-term investments in infrastructure, in uh, capabilities that we can make to, to, to improve our competitiveness for the long-term, as opposed to simply addressing the shortage that exists today? Yeah. It's a... I mean, I think there's a couple of questions that spin out of uh, Hassan's last answer. One is, is there anything that can actually be done to address this semiconductor shortage? Like, can the U.S. government actually do anything about this in the near term? Um, The short answer really is no. Uh, I mean, it, it, it just takes a long time to set up new semiconductor manufacturing capacity. You don't just say today well, let's make some more chips and they, they start coming off the line tomorrow. Um, these, these processes require a lot of very expensive equipment that itself is in shortage and hard to get. Um, and, um, you know, it takes time to qualify these machines and, you know, it's a long process with a lot of intricate details and you just can't do this overnight. I mean, you can't, there's no amount of money or political firepower that you can throw at this problem and it's immediately solved. And that, you know, that's one reason that um, that this hasn't been solved yet. I think if, if it could be sol- have been solved that way, people would have, uh, you know, done something about it already. Yeah. And the second question is, how do companies that you talk with feel about the idea of a heavier U.S. policy hand within the semiconductor industry, even if that that hand is designed to benefit them in international competition. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of executives, frankly, like it. I mean, in the in the semiconductor industry, they're they're getting free money uh, if it, if it's a company that's manufacturing. Um, people who are fabulous, who who have their chips made somewhere else, are generally pretty happy about it because it gives them a, another set of options. You know, if there are more chips. Uh, or more chip factories in the U.S., they, they have more places where they can manufacture things, and that's and that's good. Um, you generally see, you know, pretty much people are happy with the idea, despite that, you know, there tends to be, I guess, historically some reluctance to allow the government to 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 play a role in in industry. The idea now really is that other places like China, like Singapore, um, a number of other, Taiwan, other jurisdictions have offered a lot of incentives for semiconductor manufacturing to come to their shores. And so for the U.S. to kind of level the playing field, they need to offer similar types of incentives. And so it's seen as less of a, you know, big industrial policy than, you know, we just need to kind of compete on a level playing field with everybody else. Yeah. I want to bring in caller John from Santa Clara. Hey, John, welcome to the show. Yeah, where I live, I must be within 10 miles of thousands of custom and semi-custom uh, chip makers. Uh, how much of uh, these companies uh, are just doing the designing uh, and how many of them are actually manufacturing in a, in a some kind of co-op manufacturing basis or are they offshoring? Yeah. 
Thank you, John. Uh, Bindia, do you want to take that one? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the design and um, R&D happens um, just about everywhere. Um, the fabulous semiconductor companies focus on the functional um, capabilities of the chips that they specialize in. The R&D of the manufacturing companies is looking at the latest technology and design for manufacturability of the latest design that they, they receive from different fabulous companies. So the Manufacturing capacity, though, um, is is definitely held in the hands of a few key players. As we said, offshore, you look at players like TSMC, UMC, um, and and there are fabs owned by others like Global Foundries. Certainly, here on the onshore, you have Intel, TI, um, and then companies like Micron and others have their. Uh, own fabs as well. Then you have players like Infineon um, uh, out in the EU. Again, there are fabrication fab facilities in all different parts of the world um, and different players dominate in different geographies. Hmm. You know, Hassan, one thing I wanted to ask you about is that these products, like the end product, right? I mean, they rely on a whole bunch of actually small and medium-sized businesses to get everything done, right? So in the old days, if you look at Silicon Valley, you know, in the 60s and 70s, it wasn't just that we had Fairchild and Intel. We had all these other sort of supporting companies. Would it be possible to rebuild that ecosystem, even if we weren't doing the ultimate manufacturing? Or do you kind of need that big top line manufacturing facility to drive or pull all the talent to an area that does this kind of work? So I, I think you really hit the nail on the head on where, um, where policymakers should be looking to focus on, on rebuilding capabilities. I, I think too often policymakers do what, what um, Otis Graham called buffalo hunting, which is they want the big shiny manufacturing facility to kind of pull the ecosystem close to where it's located. Um, but exactly to your point, if you looked at the Silicon Valley uh, of old, um, sort of the one that I grew up in, it it thrived because not only was design and manufacturing co-located, but there was a rich services and manufacturing ecosystem locally that allowed firms to innovate and experiment faster um, with, with the services that were available down the street or next door. If I'm running experiments or if I'm running uh, uh, different samples, I didn't have to ship them across the country or across the world. I could drive them in some cases um, to vendors uh, down the street or the town over. Um, there are real benefits to an ecosystem's ability to innovate and push the frontier in being co-located that way. Um, and I think as a policy perspective, I go back to the point that I was making earlier, which is policymakers are overly enamored with getting a big, sexy manufacturing facility in their town without focusing on how can we rebuild the ability of um, small and medium businesses to play a crucial role. Um, and that's where I think... Um, looking at a diversity of approaches, um, whether it's purchase agreements, whether it's financing mechanisms like Senator, Kroon, Senator Coons's proposal for an industrial finance corporation, um, are, um, uh, play a more important role in rebuilding those ecosystems. And, and in doing so, not just to the benefit of those small and medium-sized businesses, but also to the big business businesses um, and the, the the people who work in the whole ecosystem, because it, it facilitates knowledge transfer um, and, and helps to accelerate the capabilities of the entire industry located there. Yeah. You know, thinking back again to Silicon Valley history, there are a lot of Superfund sites in Silicon Valley because of semiconductor manufacturing. There were also huge numbers uh, of immigrant women who worked in those facilities. A lot of uh, Latins as well as uh, Vietnamese women came to the, the South Bay. So there are major labor and environmental issues that go into this kind of semiconductor production. Um, Asa Fitch, is there a possibility that we just can't do this kind of manufacturing in the U.S. because of our you know, focus on environmental rules, not wanting to have more Superfund sites? Or is there a possibility that there are places where we could actually do this manufacturing or do it in a cleaner way? Yeah, I mean, I think I think things have advanced in the industry to a point where uh, people have a good handle on you know how to how to build a semiconductor manufacturing um, facility without 
completely destroying the environment. Um, you know, it requires, the industry requires a lot of water. You need a lot of clean water. Um, you need a lot of electricity and things like that. So, you know, you want to be in places where you have good access to those things. Um, these days, a lot of the industry in the U.S. is concentrated in, in Oregon, where Intel is the dominant player. And there's a lot of stuff in Arizona. There's a lot of stuff in Texas. Um, and uh, those are the key ingredients. I don't think there's anything sort of environmentally that fundamentally prevents more of this stuff from existing in the U.S. Um, because of the regulations here. Uh, certainly, there's a lot of scrutiny on these on these uh, facilities when they're built by the Army Corps of Engineers, other agencies, you know, federal agencies, et cetera, et cetera, that that look at these things and make sure they don't have adverse impacts on the on the environment. But I don't think we're we'd be going back to a a point where we were in the '60s uh, when we're talking about environmental impacts. We've been talking about the big semiconductor shortages that are hitting all kinds of industries in American industrial policy with Asa Fitch, reporter covering the semiconductor industry for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you, Asa. Thank you. We've also had Bindia Vakil. She's the CEO and founder of Resilink, a provider of supply chain mapping services and risk monitoring data. Thank you, Bindia. And finally, Hassan Khan, product operations expert with a PhD in semiconductor policy. Thank you so much. Thanks, Alexis. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for another hour with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snapchat Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcast.